All right, hey everyone, and welcome back to the 747 Club podcast, 747 Conversations. It's your host, Chris Shembra, and I am honored to have my dear friend, Alan Gannett, on the other line. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. Hey, man, I'm excited to be here. But I, I'm not eating pasta. Is that okay? Should I go get some pasta? You're you're forgiven for now because you've had it in the okay. past, so you know the flavor. It's having good trigger okay, moments. thank God. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to Alan today, not only as, as the founder and CEO of a wonderful company called Track Maven, but also the author of the forthcoming and highly anticipated book on creativity called The Creative Curve, where he's really diving into the neuroscience and the facts behind why the creative process is filled with myths and needs to be decoded and engineered and democratized so that people have access to the same abilities to be creative themselves. Alan, to start this podcast, we always ask the same question. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your childhood who inspired you to go along this pattern or along this path, who would that be? Yeah, I think I would definitely have to go with my father. I mean, my father was an engineer who was incredibly, incredibly lovably dorky. And, um, you know, he dropped out of high school to go to college when he was 16. He was sort of always this sort of like enigmatic figure to me. Um, but he always sort of pushed me to sort of question things and sort of realize that a lot of the things which seemed unexplainable had a deep sense of sort of reason to them. And so I think his inherent sort of uh, scientific skepticism definitely left an imprint on me, even though I was not someone for the sort of hardcore math and sciences. I think it definitely left a, a strong impression on me and being able to sort of better understand the world like an engineer would. And having an engineer's mindset and a, and a natural knack for curiosity, what was that like as a kid? Were were other kids doing that? Were you an outlier? What did that feel like? So I was um, I was an only child, and I was the only child, and I was a love child. And so, you know, my parents, I think, got married maybe a few months after I was born, um, and they were married for like four months. <laughs> um, and so um, I was always, I was spent a lot of time by myself, you know, just inherently having divorced parents, only child, shuttling back and forth between two homes, you know, two parents who worked. And so I think I always had a lot of time by myself. And so I think I spent a lot of time as a kid in my own head, um, which definitely made me not cool. Um, so I was definitely that kind of kid who was a little bit uh, awkward. I had these big, strange glasses. So I think people sort of left me to my own devices. And so I think I spent that time really just thinking about like the things around me and trying to amuse myself. I would always create these massive games out of Legos and, um, you know, I had you know, these plastic soldiers and I would host these massive battles among the soldiers. So I always had to sort of spend a lot of time uh, just thinking. And um, I definitely found that to end up being my sort of like comfortable place to, to probably a fault. You know, as an adult, I had to learn how to like uh, turn that off and learn how to like, you know, process basic human interaction. But uh, it's okay. You know, it's a work in progress. <laughs> Well, one of the one of the early stories I know about you is is, is you took that scientific and, and pattern studying mindset and applied it to something that ended up being very fun and, and lucrative, which was hacking the game show system and becoming a, a, a TV star. 
What what the heck was that? <laughs> oh my god, I had this phase when I was like 18 where um so I had I had sort of my later teenage years gotten really into this idea that I could sort of like reverse engineer things. So like I was a big computer game guy and so I was always trying to figure out like how to beat the AIs of like different um calling them AIs is probably a little gratuitous, but all the sort of AIs of these different games I was playing and I sort of realized I was like, oh once you figure out there's like a pattern usually to how it plays, you can just you can just destroy it. And so I got I got kind of addicted to that concept and when I was eighteen I had this phase where I was like, okay, I was like saw someone watching a game show and I was like, this can't be that hard. And so I um I was like, I'm gonna get on a game show. And so I applied to, like, all of them, um, and I got a note back, an email from Wheel of Fortune saying that they had an audition happening in New York, and I was in Jersey at the time, I was in high school still, and they said, you know, do you want to come? I was like, yeah, of course. And so I went as this 18-year-old high school senior to New York um, you know, to go audition. I had never watched Wheel of Fortune uh, before, mm-hmm. and so maybe more like, nothing more than, like, five minutes, and so... In the weeks before, I basically spent all of my time just like watching episodes, reading message boards and forums about um, you know people's experiences auditioning, people's experiences being on the show. And what I realized was that really, when you read these stories, all they're looking for is people who could like enunciate really well and were energetic. Like that was it. They didn't care if you were good at the puzzles or any of it. And so. I remember when the day came, I had this big plan, which was like, I was like, I'm going to like hype myself up on caffeine. And so I drank all this espresso and I was like, I'm going to do an Elmo impression. And so um, I get to the audition, they give you like a written test, which I did terribly on. It was really hard. And then when the actual sort of like um, the audition part came in, I was just like, I enunciated, I did my Elmo impression. I was like hyper, um, and lo and behold, you know, a few weeks later, I get a letter saying I was part of the new contestant pool for Real Fortune. And a few months later, I got um, put on the show. And so I was like, this is amazing. And so then I had this bet to myself. I was like, I wonder if um, I wonder if this was a fluke. And so there was this MTV sort of business reality show. There was sort of like a college version of Shark Tank. And this was well before Shark Tank. And so um, and Nick Cannon was the host. Yeah. And so I was like, I should, I should audition for that too. And so I, I, I auditioned for that. And I did the same exact thing, minus the Elmo impression. And I got cast on that too. And I sort of realized at that point, I was like, oh, like a lot of these things that you sort of think of and you're like, how the heck do you do that? It's like, no, it's like actually pretty straightforward. There's actually a simple pattern behind a lot of things which seem almost unexplainable. It's like, mm. you want to get on cast on a game show, just talk loud and talk slowly. That's the whole thing. Deal. I, I'm I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna send my assistant out to apply to every game show possible with Do those it. two principles. Although I, I uh I'm not good at talking slow though, so I, I'm probably gonna be prohibited. We'll work on it. <laughs> so you 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 um you leverage those principles, those patterns, that ability to see big data, um and you turn that into a company, Track Maven, where you help uh, a lot of the, the the world's biggest brands understanding their marketing data, and you know one of the big things that that you um, you have taken notice a big uh, hurt in the market is that only two point eight percent of B two B marketers are even hitting their target, and you've been able to look at the industry and say I can now start to figure out you know things that you guys are doing wrong, and your findings have come out. 
um, or, or forthcoming into a book called The Creative Curve. What gave you the impetus to create this book and these set of principles, and, and what is it about from a 30,000-foot view? Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, I spend all of my days with um, corporate marketers at some huge brands, right? So our clients have been like, you know, Microsoft, GE, Honda, Mailchimp, you know, all these brands that you know have the money and the resources to invest in marketing. And um, what I found that was so interesting was I've been talking to these marketers, and these are people at the top of their game. But when you talk to them and you talk about you know creativity, there was always this sort of reaction of like, well, I'm not that creative. Right, I hire agencies for that. Like, I'm not, I'm not that person. And it was so sort of like jarring to me because you know, as a kid, I was a big reader. I would constantly read autobiographies, and you know, I'd read these autobiographies from these you know well-known creatives. And the stories that they tell around creativity is not the story of, oh, they were just born with it. It's easy for them. Like the story that you hear from them is actually that creativity is the result of not just hard work, but lots and lots of hard, thoughtful work. And so I would hear these things. I was like, that's not true. Like, that's not actually how creativity works. Like, you don't have to hire an agency if you want to be more creative. Like, you can actually enhance your creativity. And I, like, got a little frustrated um, a few too many times. And so I sort of realized that there was something, there was sort of a misconception at play here. And so I started giving a talk at a lot of marketing conferences, sort of telling some of the stories um, of some of the great creative geniuses like Mozart, for example, and some of the truth behind their creative origins, which are actually not the origin of just popping out of the womb, you know, being a great musician. And uh, that sort of spiraled into a book proposal, which spiraled into not just making it a book for marketers, but I realized this is something all creatives have. All creatives have this sort of notion of like, well, am I really creative enough? Can I actually Mm. do this? Why is it so hard for me? And a lot of people use this excuse to not even try. And so the book really became sort of this reaction to this idea that really was getting me down of people were just limiting themselves. And, you know, in the book, what I did is I sort of had three sort of main tracks of research. So one is I read every single, probably the last 25 years, every single major study on creativity from neuroscience, psychology, sociology. I interviewed all the leading academics who are alive, who study creativity, like some huge names like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, I interviewed Candace Erickson, like some of the people who are really in the forefront of studying talent and creativity. And then I also interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses. So these were billionaires like David Rubenstein. These were people like Pasek and Paul who did the music for, you know, Dear Evan Hansen, La La Land, and The Greatest Showman. Like they have a pretty good run. Um, you know, startup moguls like Kevin, um, like Kevin Ryan who did Guilt, MongoDB, Business Insider, Alexis O'Hanian who did Reddit. Uh, Nita Jacobson, who's the producer behind The Hunger Games, so really eclectic set of creative geniuses. And basically, with the book, how I ended up structuring the book is the first half of the book is debunking the myth that creativity is this like mystical, you know, inspiration thing that you can't, you know, you can't really apply any reason or science to. So I actually explain. Yeah, yeah I want to. Yeah. Pa- I want to pause at that moment for in, for a sec because there's a line in your book um, that is. Is essentially, you know, debunking the myth that creativity is a random gift from God. You know that only people that are born with an innate talent are able to be creative, and that's so wrong. Can you tell the story about um, artists in medieval times 
and how creativity was actually thought of as like just a low level skilled worker. And then when did that transition into it being this like, you know, otherworldly aspiration to be a creative genius? So, okay. So this is one of, to me, one of the most like amusing things about creativity is I, I have a chapter in the book where I explain um, the perception of creativity uh, over time since the age of Plato. And it's one of these things that we've actually had very a lot of different phases of how we think about creativity. So, for example, in medieval times, um, creatives were viewed as basically like craftspeople, and they were like viewed very lowly in society. And the reason why was that their whole job, it was perceived, was to imitate. And it was either that they were imitating things like um, you know they were creating for churches the same sim- symbols over and over again, or when they were creating things that were more original, they were just imitating God. They were just imitators. That was their job. They weren't actually creating anything. It was actually only when um, the Italian Renaissance started and there started being all this wealth and there started being more people who wanted to buy art to decorate their homes that there started being more demand for art. And so all of a sudden, the artists actually had a lot more negotiating power and just like sort of more ego because they were getting richer. And so they started demanding more sort of uh, almost, I don't know, affection. And they just started you know, creating these sort of stories of themselves as, well, I'm better than this person, so you know, pay me more for my art. And all of a sudden, you had the idea of an artist as someone uh, sort of special in society. And it was really a basic sort of economics thing of there was more purchases for art, the prices of art went up, the people who created the art became richer, and they sort of demanded loyalty. And um, they started getting patrons, and you know, certain rich merchants and noblemen started affiliating themselves with certain artists. And as that happened, the sort of myth of the of the artist just sort of uh, enveloped and developed. And eventually, we sort of um, started viewing artists not as imitators of God, but actually um, on God's playing field as actual mm. people who could create like God could. And so. This, this view of an artist as this creator of things is actually a somewhat recent phenomenon, which is kind of interesting because, like, you know, I think we sort of view our perception of creativity today as, like, well, like, this is how creativity has always been viewed. And that's not true. We used to, we used to think of, um, you know, poets as, like, lowly people. And, like, you know, that's obviously not how we view them today. Except when I write poems. They're terrible. <laughs> Please share them one day. <laughs> and... and, and- up until recent, so so recently, um, a wonderful professor, uh, Mihaly. So I'm not even going to try to pronounce the last name. <laughs> Mihai, but Mihai Check sent Mihai. There you go. It's hard to say. I'll let you say it ten times fast. <laughs> um, he he uh, he wrote a book called Flow and delivered a, a highly popular TED talk called Getting Into Flow. Which is essentially saying that, kind of reversing that that trend that um, those who create art and those that are creative don't necessarily have to have this high lofty connection to God, but they have it within themselves and around them to be able to do that. And he distilled the three traits of a creative genius, which is one is the subject matter, two is the gatekeeper, and three is the individual, and, and that we all have that ability to be creative. What, what was he talking about with those concepts? Yeah. So, um, um, so Mihai is the sort of one of the sort of leading thinkers on what's called the systems, um, model of creativity, which is, 
um, definitely from my perspective, the correct um, view of creativity. And my book, in many ways, is sort of a um, a sort of more accessible nod to that theory. And basically, the whole idea of, of it, you could boil it down to the fact that creativity is one of those things that is actually very, very hard to define. So if I asked you to look at two different paintings and say which one is creative, it's actually very hard to do that without context. So let me give you an example. If you know you painted the Mona Lisa today, Chris, if you painted it, um, well, even if it's technically very precise, like the Mona Lisa has already been painted. You just create a reproduction. That's not creative. So creativity is actually something that exists within a lot of context. And um, the academic definition of creativity is something that is both novel, the ability to create something that's both novel and valuable, novel mm -hmm. and valuable. And the and's important because um, it's not just things that are new, it's not just things that are innovative, it's also things at the same time are valuable. And the issue is that value is a subjective statement. Value is something that we have to agree that something is valuable for us to label it as valuable. And so the whole idea of the systems model of creativity is that there's a huge element of creativity, which is you have to get people to recognize something as having value. So how do you do that? Well, there's certain people in our culture who we say they're the ones who determine that, the gatekeepers, right? So in the record industry, for example, you know, traditionally it's been you know, the AR reps and the record label executives. Um, you know, maybe for a restaurant, it is you know, the, the reviewers for the local newspaper, the Michelin star guide. They're the people who in our culture we've determined they can establish what has value. And so as a creator, a huge part of your job is not just to create things that are technically precise, not just to create things that are innovative, but to create things that will be recognized as having value by the gatekeepers. And so Mihai spends a lot of time over his career really diving into the sort of the how, how to do that. And so he has this one really famous study that he did where um, he went to an art school and he spent all this time interviewing art students, having them do different tests. And what was interesting was that you know, the students who in school uh, were thought of as the best artists were the students who, were, who most fit the cliche of an artist. They were kind of weird. They were bohemian. They were all these things. Fast forward, he kept spending time with these kids. And every five years, he would you know, check in with them. And lo and behold, you know, 10, 15 years later, when he was 10 or 15 years later, when he was spending time with them, the people who were the most successful were actually not those students. The people who were the most successful 10 years out were actually the ones who, sure, they were good artists, but they were also the best salespeople. They were also the best at promoting themselves. They were also the best networkers. In fact, one of the funniest things he found was that all of the most famous artists from this cohort, they all rented lofts out of college. And he makes this whole big point about the lofts because it turns out renting a loft, if you're an artist, an aspiring artist, is really a signal to society, to the sort of the art society of like, look, like I'm a real person. I can, I have this loft, I have parties, I invite other artists over, uh, I'm sort of someone who brings people together. And that's actually a huge part of creative success is that ability to promote yourself. And so... Um, you know, creativity is one of those things that I think on the first blush we look at it, we're like, oh, like, of course, it's easy to distinguish what's creative or not. But actually, when you take a, a closer look, it's one of those things that um, has a lot of nuance to mm -hmm. it. And, and so how has digital 
affected the ability of an individual to bypass the gatekeeper, for instance, Spotify or Amazon Publishing, and empower artists to become their own salespeople? Yeah, great question. So one of the things that has happened that's been really fascinating is the internet has just reshuffled the gatekeepers completely. So um, and it's, it's in a bunch of nuanced ways. So obviously, if you have a restaurant, for example, you know Yelp is now such a huge, such a huge deal, and your Yelp reviews are a form of a gatekeeper. But one of the things people mistake is you say, okay, well, the internet has completely democratized it, and it's democratized it more. But it's actually the bigger thing it's done is change who the gatekeepers are. So now, oftentimes, your gatekeeper. Um, sure, it's like the listener if you're a musician, but the actual the person at Spotify who curates the playlist, that's now a gatekeeper. The person who has a really popular playlist on Spotify, that's a gatekeeper. The Yelp elite reviewer, um, that's a gatekeeper. And so the gatekeepers are shuffling, and so they're moving down market. It's becoming they're becoming more and more accessible. Um, but there still are these gatekeepers, and the internet is just rechanging those. And so that's why you see a lot of sort of old institutions having this sort of moment of mild panic because their role in culture and society, it's, hmm. it's changing. Hmm. And you took Mihai's concepts and created the entire premise around the book around that, which you call the creative curve, which you mentioned the words cliche and, and the words novelty in that previous explanation. One of the, one of the lines in your book is you say a good novel needs to be more than a novelty. It needs to be familiar. So tell me about this curve that you mm. created that's based on familiarity, trends, the law of diffusion of innovation, and how you can try to prevent things from becoming cliche and falling in and out of style. Yeah, so one of the most interesting things that I found when I was researching the book was that, you know, we think of sort of hits and trends as these things that happen um, in society and culture. And there's actually like, Chris, like a lot of good science on this stuff. Like it's actually one of these things that there's a lot of research on, like what causes people to like certain things or not like other things. Like we actually know a lot about this. And so I try and distill all the research in this book into a couple sort of key concepts. So the first two that are seeing the most underlying in importance are, as humans, we have these two contradictory urges that seem like they make no sense, but it actually makes more sense when you dive into them. So the two contradictory urges we have are on one side, we crave things that are familiar because they make us feel safe. So, you know, if you're a prehistoric cave dweller, you know, if you saw a cave that you've never seen before versus a cave that you spent every night in, you feel a lot safer going to the cave that you've spent every night of your life in. And so we have this urge for the familiar. It's like when you're, you know, you have that, uh, that you know, armchair that your grandmother gave you and it's like, it's kind of ugly, but it still makes you feel somewhat comfortable just having it around you. There's this, there's this sort of like almost inherent nostalgia to our lives. We like things that are familiar, but on the other side, we also like things that are novel. We also like things that are new. And this is because, and again, it goes back to evolutionary biology. We are constantly looking for new sources of potential reward or energy. And so if you think about, you know, the prehistoric version of Chris, um, you know, you were foraging and you would see a new berry in a field and you go, oh, this might be a new source of food for me. 
And so the issue is that these two things make no sense together, right? Wait, we both like things that are familiar, but we also like things that are novel, like, huh? And it turns out that these contradictory urges are actually intentionally contradictory because they're actually a really artful way that our brain balances risk. So for example, if you're in that field and you see a berry and it looks nothing like a berry you've ever seen before, your body might go, eh, mm, let's not risk it. It's not, it's, it's too new. It's not familiar enough. Versus if you see a berry, which kind of looks like a weird strawberry, you might go, oh, like I've seen this before. This is probably fine. I'm going to eat it. This is a good potential source of reward. And so our brain is constantly balancing familiarity and novelty. You know, it's trading off risk and reward. And so it turns out that one of the biggest drivers of human preference is exposure. And so the basic way you could sum it up is that you know, when we first see something, we usually don't like it very much. But then the more we see it, as it becomes more familiar, the more we like it, but at a certain point, it becomes too familiar, and we actually are novelty-seeking wins out, and we want something We want something new. This is when things reach cliche. They become overexposed. And so we have this really sort of uh, this amazing phenomenon where in study after study, they find that there's this bell curve relationship between exposure to something and preference. The more we see something, the more we like something, but only up until a point, and then we like it less and less with each exposure. You can think about it like when you hear new music, like the first time I heard that new Drake song, what is it, Nice for What or whatever, what, yeah. I was like, this is, yeah, I was like, this is terrible. And then the third time I was like, this is great. And then I think I'm at like the 20th listen, I'm starting to go like, I'm kind of bored, right? And so and I'm sure if I listen to it more, I'll just be like, I have to stop listening to this song. And so this bell curve relationship that's been found in lots and lots of studies, in the book I call it the creative curve, and it's this idea that really great ideas, really great ideas fall in the right spot of this curve, which ironically is the left side of that. That's a little confusing. So um, they fall on the left side of this curve where they're not overly familiar um, and they're not overly new. They have this right balance of familiarity and novelty, and that's the ideas that take hold in our culture. So you think about the first Star Wars movie, it was literally a Western in space, right? It was not, the plot was literally good guys chasing bad guys. Like, it was like, this is, this is what it was. There was, no, there was no real innovation in the plot. It was just that it happened to go on in space. Um, you know, Harry Potter was a very classic rags to riches story sort of orphan going through redemption story it was just told in this entirely new setting and it was told you know in the context of people who were witches and wizards like and so so much of the things that we latch on to are actually the things which are very familiar but they have a novel twist to them and so that's the whole concept in the book of the creative curve is you know mapping out that balance of familiarity and novelty now, before we dive into the four laws that make up that curve, I want to ask you about where you are on this curve right now. Why is this book needed so much right now as an early adopter, as an innovator that you are? Um, so I think, I think one of the things I found right now is that when you talk to people who want to be creative, so much of um, the sort of stuff out there in popular culture is around the sort of mythology of it. So, you know, you see 
um, Elon Musk on the cover of magazines. You see pop stars, musicians on the cover of magazines. And we talk about creativity as this thing that's relegated to you know, these individual solo geniuses who have these amazing skills. And we forget the part of like Elon Musk literally has thousands and thousands of the world's best scientists working for him. Right. He is not by himself designing these rockets. And so we forget that there's so much more context to these stories and it's so it's so um, discouraging. And so the other thing I found is that, you know, the book, what I tried to do is the book is very much has a lot of the core elements of other books in the genre, sort of in the pop psychology genre, which is that, you know, there's narrative stories, there's studies, there's all this stuff. But what I tried to do that I hope is very different in the book is I think most books in the genre tend to make one big point and the whole book is repetitive of that point. And so in the book, what I tried to do is that each chapter is making a new point. And the entire book, I hope, is worth reading from cover to cover because it's not just sort of giving you more anecdotes that are supporting the original thesis, but it's actually unfair unfolding and unfurling how to actually do this and how that actually works and the science behind it. And so I tried to write it as sort of a, um, you know, a creativity 101, so to speak, where the, the entire book is, is, uh, is like, you know, it's constantly giving you new information. Yeah. There, there's a line in your book that is essentially saying that you're trying to purposefully increase the number of aha moments with these uh with these with these four laws which is consumption imitation creative communities and iterations tell me about those four laws yeah so so in the second half of the book what i did is so i interviewed about 25 of these living creative geniuses you know these were they had tons of tony awards emmys oscars golden globes like these are very sort of decorated people and what was interesting is across these 25 interviews I found a bunch of things that were consistent, and I found these four things that had like 100% compliance, where 100% of the people, they did these things. And they actually, these are some of the reasons why they thought of themselves as having been successful in creativity. Not all of them were able to actually acknowledge that this was why, but a lot of them were, and all of them did them. And so in the book, in the second half of the book, I lay out these four things that they did, and I explain the science of why they work. And so... Um, you know, the four things were consumption, imitation, creative communities, and iterations. And so consumption was the one that I thought um, was just really, to me, probably one of the most surprising, which is that when I interviewed all these great creators, you know, we talk about creativity, we talk about creators as people who are constantly doing, they're constantly out there, they're doing things. They're not just the people who are consumers of culture, they're the creators of culture. But these great creators actually spend a huge amount of their time consuming information. And they're actually, they go very, very narrow. They're consuming information in their specific niche, in their specific vertical. So, I, for example, I interviewed um, Ted Sarandos, who is the chief content officer of Netflix. He's been there since 2000. He's overseeing the entire strategy to go into original programming. And now they're spending you know, $7 billion a year on content. And... You know, the amazing thing he told me was that as an 18-year-old, mm -hmm. he was a community college student, and he got a job as a cashier at a video um, a video rental store. And you know, video rental stores are empty during the day, 
And so rather than you know do his homework, what he did is he decided he's going to watch every single movie in the store. <laughs> every single movie. And he wasn't being hyperbolic. So sure, there was less movies in the 1980s. But like he watched literally every single tape in the store. And he credits so much of that to his success because that's what gave him this understanding of what would be familiar to an audience. He actually understood what was out there. And so if you want to create things that are familiar, you have to know what's out there. And and it goes even further than that where on consumption, it's not just that these creators had this one big sort of consumption phase in their life, even though all of them did. You know, J.K. Rowling had this, you know, sort of chaotic childhood and to get away from it, she would lock herself in her bedroom and just read and read and read and read and read. But these creators actually continued this consumption to this day. And so one of the things I thought was most surprising was these creators are all like they're busy, they're successful, they have private planes. Like these are people who don't have a lot of time, but they still spend huge amounts of time consuming content. Mm. So Ted Sarandos would tell me, you know, he'd watch three to four hours of television every single day. These musicians I would interview tell me they listen to hours and hours of music every single day. And that's how they stay relevant. Because if you stop that, if you stop that, you lose your connection to your audience. You don't know what's out there, so you don't know what's fresh. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's different. You don't know what's interesting. And so that was just, that was fascinating to me. And a quick question about the difference or the the explanation of what's happening in the brain when you're consuming the difference between yeah. the short term and the left with the long term and the right what's the neuroscience behind that consumption process that you can see and some that you cannot see yeah of course so basically what's interesting is that consumption has two roles in creativity so one is that it just lets you understand what's familiar but there's actually a more nuanced uh, neuroscience phenomenon happening too which is that you know, aha moments are one of these things that, you know, we think of as super magical, right? You know, Chris, sometimes you're in the shower and, you know, you have this big like epiphany and you're like, this is what I need to do. And, and you're like, this is so exciting. I need to get out of the shower and I need to write this down right now. And all of a sudden your phone's wet because you're typing yourself a note. And, you know, these aha moments, they feel so special. They feel so exciting. But it turns out that aha moments, there's actually a ton of really good science on them. We actually, there's a ton of scientists who spend their whole career studying these aha moments. And it turns out that aha moments are really nothing that special. All they are is that they're a different type of processing. So our brain has these two hemispheres, and it's kind of cliche to talk about right brain, left brain, but it's actually very important when you want to study creativity. And so our left hemisphere of our brain is where we do more logical processing. This is where when you're solving a math problem, this is where when someone asks you a very direct question, you answer it. So if I asked you, Chris, what color is the sky? You know, your left hemisphere would go, it's blue. Um, and this type of processing is all very conscious. It's very step-by-step. -step. You know as you're working through it, like when you're solving a crossword puzzle and you're trying each letter out, this is your left hemisphere processing, this very logical, this very conscious processing. But then you have this other type of processing. So your right hemisphere also processes through things. And so your right hemisphere goes through what I call sudden insight processing, which is that sometimes you're looking at something and all of a sudden you get the answer. And sometimes you're looking at a crossword puzzle and you're like, oh, the answer is green. And this type of processing is actually the same exact thing that these creative geniuses are having when they talk about aha moments or moments of inspiration. And all it is is that our right hemisphere 
is where we do more sort of like distant processing, where we connect, you know, concepts that are are less are less close together. When we connect those things together, and so um, what's interesting about your right hemisphere is that when it's doing this work, it's all subconscious. We don't actually realize we're doing this. It's not this sort of very aware step-by-step processing. Instead, your right hemisphere is constantly in the background doing this work, Hmm. trying to connect these different concepts together. So, for example, it starts to make sense when you realize, okay, you know, think about it as like your left hemisphere is your like like loud lab partner. It's like, you know, talking (laughs) through every step. It's like... You're trying to think through to the conclusion. Your right hemisphere is your quiet lab partner. It's like kind of mumbling to itself. It's like working through it. And only when it gets the answer does it go, hey, hey, Chris, I got something. And then you're like, whoa, I got this answer. Where did it come from? And it's actually not that it came from anywhere magical or anywhere that special. It's just a different type of processing. And it turns out what research tells us is that if you want to have more of these right hemisphere moments of these aha moments of these sudden insights well the thing you have to do is you have to have more knowledge you have to Mm -hmm. have more wisdom you have to have more experiences and it's not that you actually have to go through the experiences but one of the ways to shortcut that is just to consume more information Mm. so by consuming more information your right hemisphere has more you know, electricity, so to speak, for those light bulb moments has more concepts to connect together. And so consumption is one of the sort of the easiest ways to hack that. And, and to, to blend that into the next one, there's a line in your book that says originality and creativity are just clever remixes, right? The Mm. more information you have in your brain, the more you can actually remix the work, which gets to the second law of the creative curve which is imitation. Where does that come from? Yeah, so one of the things I thought was so interesting was, you know, I, I, I do all this this diving deep into consumption in the book, and I interview all these creatives about their consumption, and you know, they all spend three or four hours a day, I found, consuming content, even as successful people, like a huge amount of consumption. But then I sort of like step back and I go, wait, a lot of people consume three to four hours of TV every day, but they're not, you know, writing great screenplays. So, like, what's going on? Like, there has to be something deeper. And it turns out that it's not just how much you consume; it's also how you consume. And the way that these creatives um, consume is in this, like, very sort of like I call it like it's like interactive imitation. Like, they when they look at a piece of work, they're not just experiencing it, but they're sort of touching and feeling it. They're imitating it. They're looking at like what are the different component parts of this. So. You know, a great, a great, uh, a great sort of look at this is um, Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. When he was a master's student, he was a ma- he was trying to get a master's degree in anthropology, and he ended up giving up because, and I quote, um, he didn't realize how quote stupid primitive people could be, <laughs> and so he got bored <laughs> of anthropology. But he wrote this he wrote this attempted thesis on the emotional arc of stories. And so he would go through stories and he would actually map out the emotional arc of these stories. And so he was he was learning the emotional arc of these stories by reading them. But he wasn't just reading these stories, but he was actually sort of touching and feeling them and looking at them and learning how to imitate the arc. And he came up with these four different patterns for what great emotional arcs of stories were. What were these consistent emotional arcs? And he realized through this that there was this repeatability in the sort of literative canon. 
literative. I don't know if that's a word. Literature <laughs> canon. I don't know. We'll go literary canon. There we go. Try three. Um, and so and so through doing that, he learned what the baseline was. He learned what that familiar baseline was. So then when he wanted to actually create his own a level of novelty, his own pivot on this, he already had this structure, this structure he could remix from. And you see this over and over again in art. Um, you know, Kanye West in his recent Twitter bonanza actually tweeted out this tweet that I was like, that's a pretty reasonable tweet, which is that, you know, great artists steal an update. And this is so mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. You know, so little of art is truly original because you wouldn't like it. If something was truly original, meaning you have no context, it's nothing like you've ever seen before. Well, it would be too novel. It'd be it, too shocking. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be on the. It wouldn't be on the fami- familiarity curve that you created. Correct. Correct. So you need to. You need to learn how to imitate because by learning how to imitate, you can learn how to experiment. You know, great chefs, for example. You know, the first, If you want to create an experimental omelet, for example, well, you first have to learn how to create a normal omelet. That's the first step. And and in in that piece that you mentioned about Kurt Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut was quoted saying, there's no reason why the simple shape of stories can't be fed into computers. Now, you're bringing computers into a conversation about storytelling. What is the impact of AI on art and storytelling? Oh, Oh my God! Um, so Chris, this is like a whole thing. So it's super interesting. <laughs> Sorry, we... I think so. There's a bunch of uh, there's been some interesting discussions in the AI community around, you know, when when will AI be able to recreate art? And there's been some attempts where you know they've they've trained AI to write poems and stuff, and currently it's not very good. Um, and this is one of the places where I think creativity has a, a longer shelf life as a sort of skill for people. And that's one of the things that is, is going to be the most difficult for AI to, to recreate. But um, computers and AI are starting to give us some better understandings of some of the, like, the science around creativity. Eventually, I think AI will be able to do you know, creative things. I think it'll take another 50 to 100 years. But what AI is able to do now is, for example, there were some scientists who decided that, well, you know, Kurt Vonnegut did this emotional mapping by hand. What if we tried to do this using natural language processing? Hmm. So they fed into these algorithms all these stories from Project Gutenberg, um, which is this online library of sort of free, free text. And what they found was that they found there were six, not four, but they found that there was these six consistent emotional arcs of stories. And they were able to actually detect this, looking at the emotional valence of different words and actually seeing how did these stories develop. And they found, um, you know, as Kurt Vonnegut predicted, that Rags to Riches was actually the most effective story arc. It was the one where stories that had a Rags to Riches emotional plot line were actually the most downloaded in Project Gutenberg. They were the most popular. And so AI is actually giving us this really great sort of look into, I think, some of the patterns around creativity that are sort of hard for the human eye to see, but Hmm. really are there. I mean, for example, you know, there's some really interesting studies I did not talk about in the book. Um, But for example, in pop music, they fed pop music into algorithms. And what's actually really interesting is that the complexity of music they found has actually gone down 
over time. And that that's one of the big trends in music is right now we're on a downswing of complexity. We're, we're taking music that's simpler and simpler. Now, I don't think that's actually going to stay the pattern forever. I think it's just a sort of a 50-year 50 50 year turn. But we're able to actually start seeing these things at a very macro level uh, in a way which is, you know, it, it's, it's really, it's a lot more tactile. Interesting. Now, now what I'll say is, is uh, AI, what it doesn't, have that humans have in the creative process is number three on your law, which is a creative community and how impactful um, a community of teachers, collaborators, muses, and promoters can affect the creative process. Tell me about this next law. Yeah. So in the book, I dive deep into this where, you know, since creativity, it turns out is a, is a, is a social phenomenon you know, you have to get people to agree that something is valuable. You have to get people to even see something to be able to judge whether or not it's valuable. Since it's such a social phenomenon, inherently, there's a huge component of um, human humanity in it where, you know, you have to be able to sell yourself. You have to be able to get other people to lend you their credibility. And so in the book I lay out, there's these four there's these four different people that you need in your creative community. And it's actually one of the things I think is so interesting is that this is actually one of the reasons why um, – this is actually one of the reasons why there's so much structural sort of uh, racism, sexism, you know, wh- you know, whatever isms you want to put in there in creative fields. Creative fields are some of the least diverse fields often because so much of creativity is reliant on people saying, hey, this young actor, director, writer, whoever it is, they have promise. Look at them. You need that mentor figure. And this is why, for example, Example, um, you know Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein in the 1800s. She was, I think, it was 21 when the book was published. She had to publish it under an anonymous name because, you know, as a woman, as a young woman, she wasn't going to be given a sort of fair, critical eye to her work. And so she originally actually published it under her husband's name. And so this is one of those things where, you know, to have successful creative career, you have to be given the chance and you have to be given the sort of the, uh, you have to be given or lent credibility from those who already have it. So having that creative community around you is so important. The, um, just as an offshoot to that, the, um, when you're, when you're surrounding yourself with the people that you want to be or the people that have the influence or the people that uh, inspire you. You make mention in this book that it's, it's um, in order to learn the best, you need to shut up and ask good questions like David Rubenstein. <laughs> what, what, what is the power there? Yeah, so one of the things I thought was interesting was, you know, when, you, when you're doing a book like this and you, you're interviewing a bunch of people at the top of their fields who are successful, you know, they've won awards, all this stuff. What I found was so interesting was how curious these people were. So, you know, David Rubenstein I interviewed, he's, you know, billionaire, co-founder of the Carlyle Group. You know, he has the David Rubenstein show on Bloomberg. And, you know, he's on the I think he's on the board of like 20 something nonprofits. Like it's just he's he's crazy in a good way. And what was interesting is I was sitting down with him, we had tea, and um, the guy just like is asked so many questions about everything, about life and you know, here I am, this like, you know, 20-something guy um, who he's never met before. 
And you know, when we're talking, he just keeps trying to turn the interview to asking questions about <laughs> me and trying to learn from me. And I'm like terribly intimidated. But I found that this was a huge trend in all these people that I would talk to is that they were some of the most curious people I ever met. And that is actually for a lot of these people at the top of their craft. One of the reasons why I think they stay successful is this concept of reverse mentorship where they're like very focused on bringing young, bringing fresher voices into their orbit so they could learn from them. So hmm. they could actually get those new ideas, those novel ideas. And there's actually some really interesting studies um, around the composition of successful teams. And in Hollywood, they found that teams that were successful, it wasn't just having someone with a lot of experience, but actually successful teams were teams that had both someone with a lot of experience and someone from the quote-unquote fringe, someone who was new, someone who's up and coming, someone from you know more fringe artistic communities. Those are actually the most successful ideas, the most successful teams, because they had both that credibility element, that familiarity element, but also that novel element, also mm. that ability to bring fresh ideas. So I think that idea of reverse mentorship is actually one of those things that is part of the key to staying power if you're successful. I like that. I like that. That's, that's, <laughs> I mean, that the question asking is my favorite thing in the world. So I'm glad to I'm glad to get the the uh, the uh, the understanding that maybe it's leading somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Keep doing it. <laughs> and 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 finally, to close out the the four laws, um, you know, you mentioned earlier about innovators and creators. They just keep on doing, but they don't keep doing the same thing. They actually learn to iterate, and iterations are the fourth law of your creative curve. Uh, give, me, give me the Ben and Jerry's example. Sure. So, um, you know, we have this sort of mythology of creativity as, you know, Elon Musk is going into a corner somewhere and sketching out a new rocket, or, you know, someone's going and they're sitting down in their writer's cabin and they're writing a, their next great American novel and they only leave when it's done, they type the end. And this is so far from the truth. So one of the things I thought was so interesting across all these creatives, these different people in different creative industries is how iterative the process were and how like systematic it was, how data-driven it was. So I spent a day with the flavor team at Ben & Jerry's, uh, which was like just a ridiculous experience. I mean, I, I definitely gained like five pounds that day, but... You know, what was so interesting to me is I had this sort of vision of, okay, you know, the R&D team at Ben & Jerry's, they have, you know, a bunch of really talented food scientists, and, you know, they must, you know, they probably spend all day in the kitchen, they're experimenting, and they come up with new flavors, and that's how that's how they make these, these next great ideas. And, you know, they definitely do a lot of experimenting, they're definitely spending a lot of time in the kitchen, but actually, so much of their process is this very iterative, step-by-step, -step, sort of, you know, data-driven process where... They're going in, and what they do is every year, they come up with a list of 200 flavor ideas based on consumption. So they're going around spending a whole year. They're going to different cities. They're you know, trying different food trends. They're reading all these food magazines. They're constantly seeing what new ingredients are out there. They come up with 200 ideas. They write them out. These are all written at this point, and they actually send a survey they literally send a survey to their email newsletter subscribers. And they ask their newsletter subscribers these two questions. One, how likely are you to buy this flavor? And two, how unique is this flavor? 
And what's funny is these two questions are basically how familiar is this and how novel is this? Hmm. And the reason they ask these two questions is because if you just ask, well, how likely are you to buy? Well, you just end up with caramel cookie and brownie flavors all the time. And the brand would eventually get stale and it would get kind of boring. If you just ask, well, how novel this is, well, you might end up with a lot of things that are sort of interesting and unique, but no one's actually going to buy. And so it's really at this intersection. Yeah, so there's this <laughs> I mentioned in the book the story of they um as an experiment they created this flavor um dill pickle sorbet and they were like, "Hey, do you want to do you want to try dill pickle sorbet?" And I was like, "Uh, what?" And they're like, "No, no, you got to try it." And I was like, "This is going to be terrible." And they're like, "No, no, no, it's great." And so they take out dill pickle sorbet and they, I try a piece and Chris, "Oh my god. <laughs> dude, dill pickle sorbet." is so effing good. Like, it's crazy. And I was like, what? And it's one of those things where, like, you know, it's definitely novel. It's definitely delicious. But, like, it would not be commercially viable. And so you need to have this blend of familiarity and novelty to create great Ben & Jerry's flavors. And so what's interesting is, you know, they do this email newsletter survey, and they winnow down their list from 200 to 15. Then they actually create samples of those. Then they test those samples with actual consumers. Then they actually test the names, the packaging. Then they actually you know, start producing production t- samples. And sometimes stuff they find in production doesn't work. And only then do they actually create final flavors. And then once they create the flavors, they actually get feedback on the flavors from social media. They you know, get um, information back from they have a whole customer service team where people call in and they make complaints or they say they like this flavor or that flavor. And so throughout this entire process, they're constantly gathering information. And then you know, a few months later, they actually get sales data, which they then use to further refine you know, what products are out there on the shelves. And so this product, this product process, which I initially thought, oh, well, like they sit around a room and they try ice cream is actually this like incredibly rigorous, systematic process. And I talk about in the book, you find this over and over again in all these different fields, whether it's writing, whether it's music, whether it's film, there's this incredible, incredible amount of iterations that go on in these great creative processes. Hmm. I I still want to try the dill pickle flavor. <laughs> you, you've got me. Uh, you've got my mouth watering over too. here. <laughs> now 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 I I thank you for 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 writing this book and I thank you for distilling all of this wonderful neuroscience these patterns into you know very uh, very easy to read uh, principles that we can all apply into our daily life. My question in closing though is. You know, you're you're a you're a guy who's not shy about reaching out to people to either interview or to be mentored by or to go, you know, shadow a team for a day. In closing, what advice could you give our um, our listeners on how to find the people for their creative communities that they need to go find for this process? So, the thing that I really want to like drive home to people is that. You know, you need to go out and ask for help. Like, you need to go out and you know, look for people who you can learn from, look for people who can boost you up, look, look for people who can lend you their credibility, and realize that you are not a burden, right? Oftentimes, not only do people who are more successful, they like to give back, 
But as I talk about in the book, they actually benefit, right? This idea of reverse mentorship, this idea of learning from the fringe, of learning from you know fresh ideas, learning from novelty. It's actually incredibly critical to success. And so I think you have to, as someone who's an aspiring creative, I think you have to shed this notion that you are a burden. You're not a burden. And realizing that, I think, is one of the first steps to being on this successful creative journey. I dig it. Well, I thank you for that answer. I'm gonna go put it into. Uh, I'm gonna go put it into action in my my life. Uh, Alan, thank you for coming on, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please go to the website, thecreativecurve.com, and order Alan's book. Uh, it's going to help out a lot of people. As uh, as as we always say. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. If you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions on who we should have next on this podcast, please email in. We'd love to hear from you. I hope y'all are having a phenomenal day on Earth. Remember, folks, it's your world. Go explore, and we'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.